Chapter Thirteen of It Happened in Egypt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. It Happened in Egypt by Charles Norris Williamson and Alice Muriel Williamson. Chapter Thirteen, An Underground Proposal. I didn't sleep much that night for thinking of Monny, and when I did sleep, I dreamed of her. Tangled dreams in which she was Monny Gilder with Bridget O'Brien's eyes. Could it be possible that she liked me? Mrs. East ought to know. I made up my mind that tomorrow I would begin by feeling my way, but when tomorrow came, I had no time to feel anything which concerned my private affairs. It seemed, or so I was told for my own good by Miss Hassett Bean, that the Candace people thought it snobby for me to have indulged in a private dinner party, and to have hustled them off in a drove to the Sphinx while I went leisurely with my smart friends. They knew all about the feast on the roof, and were of opinion that they ought to have been there. Did I consider my American heiress better than they, better even than the family of an ex lord mayor? If I wished to make up lost ground, I must devote myself to duty, and be nicer than ever to everybody. This was one of the moments when I was tempted to throw over my job, but I remembered the reward and set myself once more to the earning of it. For the next few days I scarcely saw Monny or Bridget, or even heard what was happening to them, for they had done the principal sights of Cairo, and I, at the head of the Candace crowd, was doing them. As if in a game of follow my leader, I led the band from mosque to mosque, not, indeed, visiting the whole two hundred and sixty-four, but calling on the best ones. To begin with, I collected the set on the height of the citadel which commands Al Cairo, the platform of the pyramids, not only the Giza pyramids, but the sixty odd others, which newcomers don't talk about, the tawny Makatam hills, and the silver blue serpent of the Nile. From this vantage place, I pointed out the things which we had to see in the city spread out below us, so that on the vaguest minds the picture might be painted in its entirety before they began to absorb details on that mosaic map which was Cairo. The tombs of the Mamluks, strangely shaped monuments, vague and white as squatting ghosts, the graves of the caliphs, the historic gates of El Carira, and the many ancient mosques, whose minarets soared against the blue like tall-stemmed flowers in a palace garden. Mentally fortified by this bird's-eye view from the citadel, of course I had to trop them up again for the sunset, my charges let themselves be led from mosque to mosque, from tomb to tomb. Some, possessed with a demoniac desire to get their money's worth of Egypt, were unable to enjoy any sight, in their nervous dread of missing some other spectacle, which some people at home might ask them about. These strained their wearied intelligences to see more than they possibly could at any one moment, unless they had eyes all around their heads, and others, of an even more irritating type, never lifted the few eyes they had from the pages of guide-books. I liked better those who, like Monny, frankly said they didn't wish to have their minds tidied up, and be told a string of things about Egypt. They just wanted to feel the things, and let them slowly soak in. And the nice, lazy, southern Americans, who said that they were tomb-shy, and loitered about, betting from one to six scarabs on the speed of fleas, or donkeys, while I whipped forth for their tired companions a dull drove of facts, fattened for their benefit. Mosques and churches and tombs had to be visited, but did not appeal to all tastes. The bazaars did. So did the zoo, more fascinating than any other zoo, because each animal has its trick, or pet, or plaything. As an excuse to see Monny and the rest of my friends, I got up a moonlight digging expedition at Fustat, 
those great mounds of rubbish and buried treasure, near Egyptian Babylon, where a city was burnt, lest it should fall into the hands of the crusaders. Mani and her party were invited to join us, and accepted the invitation, piloted by Antun. And concerning this entertainment I had an idea. Those who chose to dig among these desert-like sand-hills, between the Coptic churches of Babylon and the tombs of the Mamluks, may chance upon something of value, especially after a windstorm or a landslip. Bits of Persian pottery, fragments of iridescent glass, broken bracelets of enamel, opaline beads, or tiny gods and goddesses. Why should I not, thought I, apportion off to each member of the band his or her own digging-patch? This would save squabbling, and would provide an opportunity for me to propose in a unique way to Mani. Regarding the idea as an inspiration, I carried it out scientifically. Helped by Anthony, after the sun had set and the mounds were deserted, I staked out the most promising claims, and marked each space with the name of the miner for whom I intended it. In Monty's patch, near the surface where she could not possibly miss it, I buried a letter wrapped round a cow-eared head of Hathor, which I had bought at the Egyptian museum shop. Now, in justice to myself, I must tell you that this letter was no common letter, such as any Tom, Dick, or Harry might write to the Mary Jane Smith of the moment. It was a missive which cost me midnight electricity and brain strain, for not only must I appeal to my lady, I must also suit an environment. Mani had taken up the study of hieroglyphics, in order to appreciate intelligently the tombs and temples of the Nile. She had bought books, and was learning, with the energy of a stenographer, to read and write. She wrote out exercises, and submitted them for correction to Antun, who, as an Egyptian, was to be considered an authority. Of course, she explained to me, one comes here thinking that all Egyptians nowadays, even cops, are Arabs. But he says that Egyptians are as Egyptian as they ever were, because Arab invasion has left little more trace in their blood than the Romans left in the blood of the English. It interests me much more to feel when I'm in Egypt that I'm among real Egyptians. With this in my mind, I was convinced that a love letter in hieroglyphics, unearthed by moonlight in the mounds of Fustat, would please Mani. The difficulty was that, though I could speak Arabic fairly well, I hardly knew the difference between hieroglyphic, hieratic, and demotic forms, but the limited symbols I was able to employ were so strong in themselves that a few words would go a long way, and if they were not as correct as the sentiments they expressed, Mani was not herself a mistress of hieroglyphic style. I could find no hieroglyphic suit in which to clothe the name Ernest, but, since I had become a keeper of men, mice, and mortals, in Sir Marcus Lark's floating zoo, Mani's craze for Egyptianizing everything had suggested the nickname of Men Keeper Ra. She sometimes called me Ra for short. Therefore, I now ventured to divert to my own uses a sign and cartouche once the property of a son of the sun, and king of Egypt. Translation. Beautiful queen, star of my heart and soul, give me your love, become my wife and goddess for eternity. Men keep her ka ra. I patted myself on the back, put the letter in the ground, and the digging party was a wild success but time passed on, and I had no answer. What I expected was a reply in kind, an hieratic acceptance or a demotic refusal. Either one would be good practice for Monny. But not a hieroglyph of any description came. I had to go on as if nothing had happened. To be ignored was less tolerable than being refused. Monny's silence began to get on my nerves, and to make matters worse, there was that desert trip hanging over my head. 
I knew even less about organizing a desert trip than I knew about hieroglyphics, yet it had to be done. As Sir Marcus said it was up to me to do it so well that Cook would look sick, Anthony was absorbed in secret official duties and open unofficial duties. His was a great thinking part, and our occupations kept us apart rather than brought us together. On the one occasion when we were alone, he devoted four out of five minutes to telling me what he had learned of the night disturbance in front of the house of the crocodile. A Britisher of sorts had come into the street, guided by an Arab. There had been some dispute about payment, and the Britisher had slapped the dragoman's face. This had been followed, as he might have known it would, with a stab. A crowd had assembled, and scattered before the police. The stabbed one had gone to the hospital, the stabber to prison. Although it was not surprising that Mansour, the suspicious caretaker, had feared a trap, and closed his doors, Better El Gemeli, now one of the great unemployed, had been seen near the hospital where the injured man lay, but he had taken the alarm and departed without inquiring for the invalid's health, or else his being in that neighborhood was a coincidence. The name of the man knifed was Burke, and London was given as his address. He was between thirty-five and forty, and according to the arrested dragoman was not a gentleman but a tourist. His hurt was not severe, and as the Arab had been exasperated by a blow, the punishment would not be excessive. When at length I had seized the last remaining minute to put the question, Do you think Miss Gilder has found out who you really are? Fenton seemed astonished. I hadn't thought of it at all, he answered simply. She's giving me too many other things to think of. What kind of things? I stealthily inquired. Oh, with an evasive air, I don't know what to make of her yet, but I haven't given up my silly scheme. What silly scheme? Antoun looked almost sulky. Well, if you've forgotten, I won't remind you. It's absurd, it's even brutal, and I'm ashamed of it. But I stick to it. End of chapter 13